Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of Philip K. Dick in the order of publication. So uh, thank you once again for joining me. Currently, we are looking at the novel, The Man Who Japed. And this is part four of a six-part series on this novel. It's a novel I, I have a lot of fun with. I think it's got a lot of interesting themes. It's sometimes frustrating because it's one of the novels where dick throws in a lot of ideas and doesn't really follow through on a lot of them but it is kind of rich and and it's just a nice novel to have a lot of a little bit of fun with um, but just for summary so we're all up to speed on where we are in this story at about the halfway point in the first half of the man who japed we meet a man named alan purcell who's working making propaganda that conforms to the ideology of the state which is called moral reclamation this world emerged in the aftermath of a nuclear conflict due to the military takeover by a white South African Protestant um, named Stryker. Purcell has one of his work criticized by his superiors in the government, and he's forced to fire a long-term employee named Fred Luddy. He's offered a job in the formal government bureaucracy, basically as the head of the moral branch of the government, the telemedia. We also learn that this is an expanding society with a frontier, although many on the frontier are deemed morally and socially outcast. Keeping the frontier in line is the major preoccupation of the government. In the backdrop of all of this are some strange journeys that Purcell seems to be taking late at night and blackouts that he seems to be having and or doing things he can't really explain and understand why. Later on, they learn that the, stat the, the statue of the General Strider has been seriously vandalized but in the extent of this vandalism is kept from the population at large. Purcell visits the site of the vandalism and collects various theories and details about what happened. He meets a strange woman who gives him a card offering him a stay at a health resort. Her name is Gretchen Marpato. Later, he calls a number to make an appointment with Dr. Marpato, Gretchen's brother. Purcell confesses that he did the vandalism to the statue, but he doesn't really understand why. Later, during a public confessional, in which members of, the very, of Mary's members of the community are exposed for moral lapses due to being caught on tape, essentially due to surveillance robots called juveniles, Purcell is called out due to strange behavior such as drinking out late. Purcell later goes to a therapist, uh, Malprato, who engages in a process of resurrecting memories. He remembers talking to some boys about the frontier, and he tries, remembers trying to buy some illegal scotch, and he remembers meeting some scavengers in Hokkaido. But where he he goes there, he doesn't buy an illegal copy of Ulysses, but instead Ulysses and other things they try to sell him, but instead he just drinks some sherry. That's what the doctors learn. The doctor suggests that the explanation for his vandalism might be that he's a precog. Purcells goes back to find his company has been subject to some industrial espionage by a competing firm that has poached the worker he fired, Fred Luddy. He decides then to take the pr promotion after talking with his wife about maybe leaving Earth altogether. We do not, still not, do not fully know why he vandalized the statue. So now, the next part of Philip K. Dick's The Man Who Japed. 
Purcell wakes up feeling another bit of lost time and anxiety. He had a dream in which he basically took this big rock and threw it in his car and put it in his house. His wife asks if he went out and he says he thought he did. He, he kind of describes his dream or how he felt that he went to a jungle area. He quotes this dirty book he read a bit of in Hokkaido, which sort of offends his wife. And again, we see evidence of his open disregard for Morak rules, especially in, when he, in regards with his wife. It's almost like he wants to get caught or he wants to be exposed as not moral. Um, it seems as a, it's part of his personality or part of his psychological issues. This quote offends Janet a little bit. Well, here's what he tells her about the dreams. It's, I was on a distant jungle planet with torrid jungle priest, pre, priestesses whose breasts were like two cones of white marble, bulging within the flimsy covering of her dress, peeking through, panting with hot need. And then she calls him an adolescence for such a, a vulgar uh, explanation of, of his dream. Basically, he's, he's trying to avoid taking the dream too seriously, essentially saying he sort of had a sex dream. Now they get out of bed and they find that in their closet is nothing, is, is the head of Major Strider. So he went back, essentially the dream was him having a case of synabulism, going back to the park, literally stealing the head, which he had previously cut off when he vandalized the statue. Although most of the public doesn't know that vandalism went that far. You know, that's what really happened. And he took the head and stole it and put it in his closet. So in this sense, the dream was real enough in the sense that he stole a large round object. He then immediately makes an emergency appointment with Dr. Malparto. Now Malparto and his sister Gretchen are talking about the patient a little bit, but Purcell comes. Malparto is more than ever convinced that Purcell is a precog and basically comes right to it and asks him to submit to a series of psi tests to test his abilities. He's first tested on telepathy, then he's tested on ESP using the cards, the card, the ESP cards. He's also given a precognition test. He fails all these. The doctor still assumes that the patient has some psychic ability. So then they go to like the less common psi abilities that seem to exist. And he goes through this series of advanced psychic tests. Everything from like how to talk to an animal to moving things with his mind or affecting temperature. There's this long list of all the tests he starts to implement. Purcell just jokes that his only real ability is the ability to, to steal. But he finally leaves, telling his doctor that he probably won't be coming back. He does leave, but eventually he kind of blacks out. And he wakes up in an entirely different setting. Now here's where the novel starts to get a little bit weird. Purcell's on a bus which runs along rooftops. And he's clearly not in Morex society. It's, it just looks different. He is sitting next to a large man who asks him to hold some of the results of his shopping trip while he ties his shoelaces. And that's something people in Morex don't do. They don't spend their downtime shopping that much. That seems to be a no-no. But here we got a man who's shopping, not working. He goes to tie his shoelaces. He asks Purcell if he plays a game called Quart. Again, there's no game like this. And people in Morex don't really play games. At least I assume adults don't. It's very clear instantly that he's not in Morak society at all. Quote, this was not the Morak society because there was no swimming pools and wide lawns and separate houses and glass bottom buses in Morak society. There were no people basking in the sun in the middle of the day. There was no games called court. And this was not 
a vast historical exhibit such as the 20th Century House and Museum because he could see the date on the magazine being read right across the aisle. And it was the right year and month. The man tells them that they're in Chicago and he gets off at a stop six, which is in a residential area. And it even has nude people are engaged in nude sunbathing. And he sees that it's a little thing he throws in there. Now, Lost, he looks at it as a den card, and he has an address and the name on it, and his name is John Coates. So this is the false name that he gave the doctor earlier on, but that's why he's being identified here. Now, it turns out this doesn't seem to be Chicago. This is actually on another planet. So this is in the Outer Rim, but they created a model society, I guess, of, of Chicago. And you got like the elevated train, the bus being kind of elevated train. I don't know. I, I think there's maybe something going on here. I'm thinking of, see, Dick wrote another novel a little bit later than this called uh, Now Wait for Last Year, in which people have this fetish for the past and they spend a lot of their time creating models of past times in their homes or they create buildings and they'll actually call them like this is New York 36 or this is Milwaukee 55 or something. I don't know if a little bit of that's going on here, but it does you, we also get this kind of 1950s suburban feel here. It's this very residential living. This, you don't have any of this in the Morak Society described earlier in the novel. So he follows the address. A girl helps him, gets his bearing, and he takes a cab to the address on the card. And it's a typical 1950s suburban home. There's a baby. There's a babysitter. There's a front porch. There's a living room with a piano and all sorts of other consumer goods. The home that he's used to is very practical. It only has what he needs. This idea of shopping and filling your house with consumer goods is not really allowed, which is another interesting idea. First, you have post-scarcity in Morak. You have tech, the technology to provide need for everyone and basically abolish work. Yet you have a very strong work ethic that everyone must work. And you have people who aren't encouraged to shop. So what are they doing with all their time at work? They must be having BS jobs. There's, there's a great article by a guy named David Graeber. I mentioned him several times, I think, in this podcast. And he, and I think he later has, is working on a book about this. Maybe now, or maybe it's already out. But he talks about BS jobs. And he says that there's so much of the work we do, that's work is done in society, is not really producing anything and not really, not, not a real clear good or service or you know, a lot of it's busy work or a lot of the time we spend at work is busy work, right? And I, there's been plenty of studies that show that, you know, people on nine to five jobs work three, four, five hours at most. The rest of the time they're doing other things they're chit-chatting, they're having lunch, they're relaxing, they're on Facebook. And then that, it's a, the idea, so why keep people eight hours a day when we don't need this work to be done? That seems to be very inefficient. And his conclusion is that it's moral. It's somehow a, almost an ethical thing. And that might be what's going on here. Again, this is stuff that Dick probably wasn't thinking of consciously, but it's it's wonderful that it gets put in here, even if subtly. So he's finally greeted by his wife in this house. Purcell is greeted by his wife in this house, and it's none other than Gretchen Malparto. Although she has a... Does she have the same name? I think she does still go by Gretchen. Purcell is, of course, very confused by this, and Gretchen thinks it's because of something that happened in a party on Wednesday. And... It comes, she comes out to write, say this, that you caught me with another man. Monogamy doesn't seem to be an issue in this society, however it's, however it's arranged. 
She says, At Frank's party, when you found me upstairs with... She looked away. I forgot his name. The tall, blonde-haired one. You seem mad. You were a little this way. Is, is that it? I thought we agreed not to fear with each other. Or do you just want to work... Or you, or you want to work just one way? And then he's like, well, how long have we been married? And then he's, he's trying to get this information from her. He's amazed at the size of the apartment compared to what he's used to, too. He, he talks about how it's the size of like an office building and, and what he's used to. He, he keeps questioning Gretchen to try to get a response from her. And she finally admits that they've been married for four years. They inherited this house from her mother. And... You know, he's still kind of he's still obviously very confused about what's going on, but he's he knows enough to be able to compare this to more ex society again. Quote, the house was lovely. It was spacious, luxury, fur luxury furnished, solidly built and modern. It would last a century. The garden was full of flowers and a freezer was full of food like heaven. He thought like a vision and an after award for all the years of public service, all the sacrifice and struggle, bickerings and Mrs. Birmingham, the ordeal, of the block meetings, the tension and sternness of more ex society. End quote. So once again, it's very clear that this guy does not want to be part of Morak society. He'd much rather be on the frontier. Now, it's not really explained why he's apparently living out this 1950s life. It's something Dick likes to do a lot. He did it in a story called Exhibit Piece. Certainly he did it in the novel Time Out of Joint, where someone from the future is living in a kind of a delusional 1950s version of his, of his own past. Um, others too that are not coming to my head right now but he does this quite a lot Purcell gradually learns that in this world is this world is sort of part of his ego creating an identity as John Coates he briefly finds himself back at the clinic hearing the doctors talking about him but this only lasts a moment and he returns to his delusion again and this lasts not only another moment before this reality kind of falls away um, what what's actually happening here is he's in kind of a, a he's essentially in an extension of the clinic on another planet. It, it's not ex really explained to me, or I don't remember it being explained how he got here. Uh, it seems that just Malparto had him knocked out and then brought here for treatment. And this is part of the treatment is this this false reality, and it's a projection of his ego though. It's it's not real. So it's almost like his desire of what he wants life to be like. But the boundaries are not entirely clear to me in this part of the novel. So maybe I, maybe one of you can help me define some of the boundaries of what's actually going on here. But he, he has an effort to try to reimagine the room and he's it's resurrected and he finds himself alone in the house. Purcell searches the bedroom and finds a control panel and speakers. And now we get the sense he's more in an actual clinical setting. From downstairs, he hears people talking. It's the same conversation he heard before when he thought he was in the clinic about him, basically Malparto and Gretchen talking about him. And after some more investigation, he finds out that he's on the Vega system. I think he looks at the newspaper, which is off on one of these one of these off-world colonies. These are for people who can't conform to Morak society. The failures of the mental health system, essentially. The people who can't be fixed, who can't conform to Morak, are sent off to this frontier societies. So he calls the spaceport. He looks for tickets to Earth or any other system. He hears the price. He realizes he can't really afford it. So he calls Telemedia, but he gets no answer because it's like 3 a.m. there. He writes a note to Gretchen, and he talks about a girl named Molly. And here's what he writes. He says, Dear Mrs. Coates, you remember Molly? 
damned if I didn't run into her at the brass poker. She says she's pregnant, but you know how that kind are. Think I better stay with her till we can get a you-know-what. Expensive, but that's the price you pay. And that's the letter. So he he seems to have a, a past here that he's injected himself into, and he remembers that past because he's also non-monogamous. He's had something on the side with this girl, Molly, who got pregnant, and he's going to take her to have an abortion. Um, I don't know if this is just always reinforcing that this off-world society is completely beyond the pale of Morak. Certainly that's part of what he's doing here. Non-monogamy, abortion is illegal, consumerism, houses bigger than what you need. Right. Anyway, so that's that's that. He goes to the spaceport. He tries to rob the cashier. He claims that he has a McAllister heat beam gun. And he, just, he says, I'm going to rob you. Instead, he's arrested by the police. He's declared a super noose. Now, the nooses are the people who can't conform to Morak, so they're sent to the offered colonies. But super nooses, I guess, are people who are even too crazy for the resort. So they're sent back to Earth, I guess. Basically, they're the unredeemables. So after a brief chase, he's captured along with the super noose and being sent back to Earth to Morak. But I really like the idea that you have both Earth and the colony sending the misfits back and forth to the other side, you know, bouncing them back and forth. I, I'm doing some research these days on the Pacific. Yeah, we're on the Pacific Rim, really. And in the colonial era. And you see this like with Singapore, where like troublesome Indians from India were sent to Singapore and troublemakers from China were sent to Singapore by the British Empire. And then people in like Malays who were causing trouble in Singapore, or Chinese from Singapore who were causing trouble were sent off to other places. It's such like these colonies bouncing people off one another. You get a bit of that here. He finally goes to Earth by Sunday, which is he's going to start his next job on Monday. So he gets there by Sunday. So he's basically been gone for a week. It's never really explained how he got there. Apparently he was just kind of you know, knocked out by the doctor and and sent there where he kind of lived a couple days in this life and then he, he has enough time to get back. He calls Janet, who's happy to hear that Alan has been released. She thinks that, basically because this is what Malpotro told her, is that he was basically had a nervous breakdown. He had to be sent off-world for treatment for a few weeks. Now, why a few weeks? Well, this would have been enough time for him to lose his job, forcing him to remain on Vega 4. If he had lost his job, he would have lost the, lost the lease. You know, he would have lost you know, everything on Earth, so he'd have to stay on Vega 4. And maybe that was what Malprato wanted all along. He wanted to have control of this guy to study him or use him or something. But he manages to escape and get back. Janet covered for Alan while he was gone, basically in terms of his job. He calls Frost to check in, and she is very upset with him, obviously, because he's, you know, he's supposed to start this big, important job on Monday, and he hasn't shown up. She demands he comes over immediately. So he goes over to Frost's apartment, and in the apartment is Myron Mavis, who is the former head of telemedia, Isa Peace Hoyt, who's another high-ranking government person, also part of the Strider family, a relative of Strider, who have our important caste status almost in this society. They mostly want to know where he's been, and that's what this is meeting is mostly about. Purcell just says that it was his own time, and it's not their business. He didn't have to come to work till Monday, and so he didn't bother checking in. Now, Luddy enters, which increases the tension in the situation because Purcell is still upset with Luddy for, you know, essentially taking his or defecting. He didn't really defect because he was fired first, but 
taking with him as he went to work for Blake Moffat, another firm, taking with him all their kind of notes and their plans. He also comes in with Mr. Blake of this Blake Moffat agency. So this is a competitor. Now, thing, they begin to simmer down the mood a little bit. They talk about the Strider statue and what happened to it. And Mrs. Hoyt is part of the Strider family. And basically, they're able to calm down a little bit by talking about the statue and the vandalism. Sue tries to get back to the matter with calmer heads. She's trying to mediate this conversation. But Purcell is bothered that Luddy is there. And she explains that it was just business. We didn't hear from you. You know, we have to keep on going with business. So we talked to this firm. She then asks, comes to the real second agenda of the meeting, which is, is there trouble in the Purcell home that they need to be aware of? You can't have the head of telemedia getting divorced or breaking up with his wife or having being revealed as having an affair or something like that. That can't be allowed. The head of the moral agency of the government can't be in that position. Mr. Blake of the firm, Blake Moffat, more directly accuses Purcell of adultery. He says, when you were in Hokkaido, you slept with someone. Now, Purcell is able to use the system against him. He claims that basically you need to have juveniles document an immoral act. You can't just suggest you, that's going back to which which trial. So there's a important part of this story here about surveillance and the way it works. And I talked about this in the previous episodes. In that, yes, it's a moral regulatory society, but it's not a witch hunt. And several times this is brought up directly that these aren't witch hunts because the people who are caught are guilty. Yeah, a lot of guilty people get caught, but everyone who gets caught is guilty because the juveniles record these immoral acts. So if you get called out for drinking, it's because they saw you drink or they saw you come home drunk. Or if you get called for adultery, it's because the juveniles saw you do it. Now, I think these juveniles, I kind of imagine them as the little spidery things in, in the movie version of, of Minority Report. That's as good as anything. But they're little robots things that can keep track of everything. And I asked in previous episode, are we willing to accept a greater level of surveillance if it means that the people who get caught are going to be 100% guilty and that no innocence will be dragged into it, right? Because we've gotten to a point with DNA and other evidence that we're finding a lot of people are in jail, you know, put there by eyewitness testimony or physical evidence or other kinds of, or just the decision of a, of a jury, you know, they were convicted. Some of them are on death row. We know that's fallible now and, and DNA is better. And we're finding DNA is, is really getting a lot of these people released. DNA evidence is a type of surveillance state, isn't it? It can keep track of where we are in, in a sufficiently technologically advanced version of, you know, of DNA technology, it could keep track of where you are based on where you touched, right? If you touch the handrail of a, in a public place, maybe it could identify people that they kind of play with this in Gattaca, that movie. So, but Purcell's able to use the system against him saying, if you don't have evidence that I'm cheating on my wife, you can't claim it. In fact, he knows he's not doing it. There's, he's done a lot of things, but he hasn't been uh, cheating on his wife. Now, what evidence they do have is that he called Gretchen, who in their records is a woman named Grace Maldini. And there are other suspicions, such as him being late to work and him going those times he didn't come to work because he was at the doctor's office. And then, of course, the whole week he was gone uh, in the off-world colonies. The final piece of evidence they have is a picture of him with Gretchen. 
although it's a bit of a blurred photo, it does seem that they were together in public. But they're still unable to pin anything on him concretely. So he leaves and he'll begin work as the head of public morality the next day with this cloud of doubt about his own moral um, fidelity um, at, you know, at question. So it's, I think once again, we come to this, this theme of, of surveillance. So there's not much more to maybe say about that. But I do think an interesting aspect of this part of the story is how with this picture we get of a non-Morex society, which is very much like our own. And so I don't think Dick is necessarily criticizing them, but he's, I think he is saying that we're pretty far from a morally centered society. But the focus on on monogamy, for instance, the focus or the the the, the openness about non-monogamy, the openness on abortion, uh, the focus on lack of censorship in shopping, and these are all signs that you're not in a moric situation. The problem with this section, and, and I've read this book a couple times now, is it's really confusing of what's actually going on there. Is it all in his treatment? It's suggested that. His, the life he builds for himself there is a product of his ego and it's all kind of a fantasy and that he's not really married to Gretchen and all these things with Molly and his, and his, the party and his wife sleeping with the blonde guy. All of that is, is projections of his ego, what he wants. So this is just more evidence that he wants to be in the society. But we also know that he's physically on another planet at some point, which Malparto brought him there. And so the lines of reality are really fuzzy in this part of of the book. Now, Dick doesn't fully give us any resolution to this part of the plot, or at least not a very satisfying one. He just kind of moves on forward with uh, Purcell as head of telemedia and what he does from there. But it's very interesting what he does as head of telemedia. But for that, we're going to have to look, wait for my next, the next part of my review. So thanks, as always, for listening to my thoughts on these works of Philip K. Dick. If you have comments of your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will be back with part five of The Man Who Japed. Composes my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving